Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're, we're going to be looking at one of the most well-known and magnificent stories in all of the Bible. It is the story of David and Goliath. And maybe, maybe the first time you heard it was in a children's storybook, or maybe you even heard it outside of the church context. And even if you've never read that Bible story in its entirety, uh, you probably know, as they say, what the final score was. Uh, but nowadays, the term uh, David and Goliath is a common metaphor uh, for underdogs versus heavily favored opponents. You, you hear that in, in sports, you hear it in business, you hear it in edu education and even in politics. But for many people, the message of David and Goliath is about inspiring underdogs to imagine the impossible, dare to achieve the improbable, and reach for the stars against all odds. It sounds very inspirational. But the problem is that's not what really the story is about. It's not about inspiring underdogs. You know, even inside the church, when we hear this account, we often, we're often quick to place ourselves in David's shoes, the anointed king. And perhaps maybe we even begin to imagine uh, that we need to sling some stones uh, at our personal obstacles that we face in life. And when we're young, maybe, maybe it's that neighborhood bully. Or in later years, maybe Goliath becomes a self-image problem. Or a fear of speaking in public, like I'm doing right now. Maybe it's that debt I need to slay. Or, or this health goal that I need to defeat. But again, the problem is that's not what the story is about either. So what is this story about and what are some of the lessons that we can learn from it? Well, let me list just a few things to start. It's not a story of how to defeat whatever obstacles we encounter, but a story that exposes how unmoved we can remain when God's name and glory are being dishonored. It's not a story about David's courage and bravery, but of God's sufficiency in David's weakness. It's not a story meant to inspire belief in ourselves, but one that should expose our sins of fear and doubt. This story should drive us to seek a hero, a deliverer. And that hero is definitely not us. Let's look now at 
1 Samuel chapter 17. We're just going to start by reading the first few verses uh, to situate ourselves. And I'd ask the congregation to stand for this portion of the reading of God's word, and you'll thank me later. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in lines of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Lord, we just give you thanks and praise for your word. We thank you for the richness of your word and how it is life. We pray that you would speak that life to us today, this morning. Open our hearts to receive, to our, open our eyes too, to behold wondrous things in your word. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. You are truly our Jesus, our Savior, our Deliverer. Let the amen flow from your people again. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the uh, major themes in 1 Samuel is that of God's king. God is transitioning his people from being led by judges to being ruled by kings. And eventually in 2 Samuel, he'll establish a king with which he'll make an eternal covenant. But earlier in chapter 8, Israel came to Samuel, who was the last of the judges, and determined, and they demanded, in fact, to have a king over them, one that would judge them and go out and fight their battles. Even though uh, God had been fighting their battles, but the problem is that their motive for this was that so that they can be like the other nations. And again, even though God had called them to be distinct from the other nations, and so rather than trust God who had fought their battles, they, they wanted to choose a man for themselves. And so God granted their wish, be careful what you wish for, and he gave them Saul, a king whom they chose for themselves. However, kingship is, was not really a foreign concept for Israel. Uh, as far back as Genesis 17, the Lord had promised Abraham that kings would come from him. And in Genesis 49, Jacob prophesied about a lasting kingship through Judah. So the idea of a, of a king for Israel was not a wild idea in and of itself. It was actually already promised. 
In fact, in the very first gospel presentation, which is in Genesis 3.15, God promised that a descendant of Eve, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. And his own heel would be bruised. In other words, a deliverer was coming. And who knows, maybe, maybe this king is the deliverer that God had promised. But let's return to our battle scene where the, the stage is set for a confrontation between the Philistines and Israel. And from this point, the narrative progresses in, in several stages. We're going to go through four of them. And let's begin with a serpentine giant. Verse 4, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. Now, just to pause, the level of detail that's given here is rather unusual uh, for the Old Testament to describe in such detail uh, this armor and, and, and the enemy's size. The writer wants you to know it. Here is a, a beast of a man who stands an impressive nine feet six inches um, tall. I mean, we'd love to have him on a basketball team. And his armor is even more impressive. Uh, defensively, he had a helmet made of bronze, a coat of overlapping bronze plates, which weighed about 126 pounds. His legs were covered in bronze armor, and his shield was the size of an entire person and was carried by someone else in front of him. But as a detail, we shouldn't miss what some of our Bibles translate as a coat of mail can, can obscure a hint of who Goliath represents. Other translations say that he wore a, wore a coat of scale armor, which is a more accurate translation of the Hebrew word kaskaset. Uh, that word is used only seven times in the Old Testament, and first of all here and in six other places where it refers to the scales as of a fish. And so the biblical reader can see a link to another creature who wore a coat of scales. And that is, of course, the serpent of Genesis chapter 3, who also in the book of Revelation is referred to as a dragon, another scaly figure. His offensive armor was also impressive. He, he wielded a spear with a head made of sharpened iron that weighed about 16 pounds. And he also had a javelin behind his back made of bronze. 16 pounds, even if that thing is not sharp, coming your way is going to do some, some damage. Can you imagine 16 pounds 
of sharpened iron. Plus he had a sword. This was their champion. And let's look at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So this is the taunt of all taunts. He taunts them with, first of all, why have you come down to draw up for battle? Aren't you servants of Saul? In other words, isn't Saul your king? Choose a man for yourselves. Give me a man to fight, and let's just settle this one-on-one. -on -one. And the irony in Goliath's words of choose a man for yourselves is, is that it, that's exactly what Israel had done. They had chosen a man for themselves, and that man was Saul. He was a man who was pretty impressive on the outside, actually. He was the most handsome man in Israel and a head taller than everyone else, kind of like my brother Thomas over there. It was perfect king material, or so they thought. He was the closest thing to a Goliath that Israel had. But verse 11 reads, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It was actually Saul's responsibility to meet the challenge of Goliath. In fact, the role of the king was to deliver God's people from their enemies, the oppression of their enemies, to lead them in covenant faithfulness and define who they are. But in Saul, we see a different portrait emerge. He was a man who did not trust God, who disobeyed his explicit commands and took matters into his own hands. And when Samuel confronted him about his sin, instead of repenting like David did, he just defended himself and, and justified himself. He was a man who was more concerned about what the people would think of him than what God would think. Saul was a mirror of Israel who put their trust in human strength and outward appearances rather than God. And now they faced a problem which no amount of human strength ingenuity, creativity, or courage could save them from. The enemy in front of them was far too strong and equipped for that. 
And that's the problem with human strength, isn't it? It only takes us so far. Eventually, the road of human strength runs out. And we're face to face with the most dreadful, fear-inspiring enemy. The path of human strength only leads to destruction. But now let's enter our next section. God works in unexpected ways. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers, and also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. This is actually a, a second introduction uh, of David, because we've already uh, been introduced to him in chapter 16, uh, where Samuel anointed him as king of Israel according to God's direction. God had already decided uh, that he's not going to continue Saul's kingdom because of his disobedience. Instead, he sought out a man after his own heart and commanded him to be prince over the people. And that man was David, a young and humble keeper of sheep. And if you know the story, when, when Samuel met Jesse and his sons, he, he thought the oldest son, Eliab, was surely the Lord's anointed. I mean, this guy was tall and handsome. Again, he just looked kingly. You know, there's some people that just have that look, you know, that leadership look. But the Lord told Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And all like the seven brothers passed before Samuel. But the common refrain was, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Until Samuel was like, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, well, there's the youngest, but he's tending the, the sheep. And so Samuel said, send and get him for we're not going to leave. <laughs> we're not going to sit down until he gets here. And so... David was anointed king in front of his father and all his brothers. And we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. And now David, as a type and forerunner of Christ, 
starts to come into clearer focus for us. He is a shepherd king, anointed by God, who leads his people and establishes a kingdom. Of whom God said, I have provided for myself a king. Talking about David, but sounds familiar. So this taunting from Goliath has been going on for at least 40 days, twice a day. For the last 40 days, Goliath has kept the armies of Israel paralyzed by fear. They were unable and unwilling to respond to this challenge. And we know that elsewhere in the scriptures, the number 40 is significant. It's associated with trials and testing. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And he was also tempted by Satan there. And now, in the providence of God... The day before, Jesse tells David, go take some bread for your brothers and some cheeses for the commander and come back and let me know how they're doing. And so verse 19 continues. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Notice something, though. Notice how the writer records David's obedience and responsible behavior according to his father's will. He gets up early in the morning. He leaves the sheep in the safe care of the keeper. He, he, he takes the provisions. He, he reaches the camp and he leaves the, the bread and the cheese safely with the keeper of the baggage. And then he runs to the ranks to, to greet his brothers and see if they're okay. Just as he was told to do. Let's keep reading. And he talked with them. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Period. Dramatic short sentence coming. And David heard him. And David heard him. Just could just sort of simmer over those four words. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. 
And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. The questions that David asked here were his first recorded words in the whole book and and the first of three speeches that he gives in this chapter. And they reveal just how differently he saw and heard. What's the reward for the man who delivers Israel from this stench? What does this uncircumcised fellow think he is to defy the armies of the living God, to trample on God's great name and think nothing's going to happen to him? You see, David's thinking was God-centered. God was his starting point. That's why he was filled with a kind of a holy indignation when he heard Goliath. You know, and David heard Goliath kind of like, what did this guy just say? And David's zeal, of course, reminds us of Christ's zeal for God's glory. In Psalm 69, 9, David himself would later write what was fulfilled in Christ as well. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Verse 28 says, now Eliab, his elder brother, his oldest brother, eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. Now, Eliab's accusations, first of all, are completely false and unfounded. Part of it might be due to some lingering jealousy. You know, God passed over Eliab and chose chose David instead, and maybe there's a little lingering jealousy there. Kind of reminds us of someone else, Joseph's brothers. But the driving force is probably that he's actually trying to justify himself at this moment. You see, David's expression of bold faith is simultaneously a rebuke to those around him who don't share it. So what's happening is that their consciences are now disturbed Because they know that they've been unable and unwilling to defend God's name against such blatant mockery. But the thing is that this is, it's it's more than just, you know, classic sibling rivalry. Eliab was one of the few people in all of Israel who witnessed the, the prophet of God anointing David. So his opposition to David is actually an opposition to God. 
And without realizing it, he's actually in alignment with Goliath. When Eliab asked, why have you come down? He sounded just like Goliath, who asked the same exact question. Eliab was a man who was stuck seeing as man sees. Jesus also faced disbelief and scorn from some of in his own family. In Mark 6, 4, Jesus himself said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And David said in verse 29, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from his him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So notice David doesn't actually retaliate against his brother. He doesn't disrespect him, which is a testament to his character. He kind of gave him just a kind of a low-key uh, response. It kind of disarmed Eliab. What was Eliab going to respond after that? And he just turned around and asked somebody else. God certainly works in unexpected ways. A father sent his young shepherd king's son on a mission to bring his brothers some bread. And there, the shepherd king overheard the taunts of a godless giant who had everyone, including his brothers, paralyzed with fear and inaction. And what this shepherd king saw immediately was that this enemy was no problem for God. No problem for God. See, Israel's problem was not that they underestimated David's strength, but that they underestimated God's strength. They failed to, to see the need for not, not man's courage and bravery, but God's sufficiency in man's weakness. And yet, Israel's problem is our problem as well. Satan, sin, and death are enemies that are far too powerful for human strength alone. Goliath symbolizes not some personal obstacle that we have to overcome in life, but an enemy which we're powerless to defeat. That's why the author takes so much time to detail this enemy. And so what we need is a deliverer. Well, let's turn now to the next section, David's Gospel, David's gospel, verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. David is, is, is too young to be, first of all, in the military. But, but there he stood in, in, in front of a, a failed, proud, and yet fearful king. And what does he tell him? Verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. 
If we listen closely, if we listen closely, we hear David's gospel. He's basically saying, fear not, I will fight for you. Fear not, I will fight for you. When you consider who Goliath was, it actually seems preposterous to say, don't let anyone be afraid. Goliath embodied terror and thoughts about him shattered all kinds of confidence. John Woodhouse wrote this. It's just like the gospel we know. Look at your great enemy if you dare. Think of death, your death. Think of sin, your sin. Think of the devil and his claim on you. Yet the gospel of Jesus says, do not be afraid. That's the most preposterous thing anyone could say to sinners like us, don't you think? Except perhaps for the second thing David said, it was an indicative. A reason why no man's heart need tremble at Goliath's threats. I will fight him for you. This is David's gospel. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. You're but a youth. He's been a man of war for all his life. Since his, since, since his youth, and notice Saul's words underscore even more how David is the unlikely hero of this story. You're but a youth. You don't have the, the qualifications, at least from man's perspective, and that's just precisely the problem. But it's also precisely the opportunity. In verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and, and struck him and killed him. Now, we could, if we stop right there, we're like, like man, this guy may be Maybe this guy is actually pretty good at fighting. But there's more to that. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And here, verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion... And from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, David did those things in the power and strength of the Lord. And he said, that's the, the Lord did this. The Lord. And the same God who delivered me from those enemies is going to give this one into my hand. And what was Saul going to say? And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Which, if you think about it, is really crazy. Here you have this grown man who's the king. And there's this young, maybe he's 19 years old as a young, he's too young to be in the military. He's maybe small and, and maybe scrawny. We don't really know, but 
He's going to send him out to the battle. But it says in verse 38, and then Saul clothed David with his armor and put a helmet of bronze on his head. You're going to need this. And clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them, it says. And then David said to Saul, I I cannot go with these for I've not tested them. And so David put them off and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. David was not going to be a king like Saul, like all the nations. He wasn't going to go in Saul's strength. He wasn't going to go with Goliath's kind of uh, uh, garb. He was going to go in God's strength. He doesn't need that. So let's look at our next section, David and Goliath. And the Philistine, verse 41, moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. Remember, it's the guy who carries the shield. It's the size of a whole person. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, which means red, and and handsome in appearance. And the, the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Of course, the answer is, yes, you are a dog. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Ah, well, now we start hearing something about the Philistine gods. Who were these gods? Let me read you a funny story. Chapter 5, the Philistines had captured the ark of God. And verse 2 says, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. You know, the trunk where the coat of mail fit. And so that's, that's their gods. And Philistine said to David, come to me. And I'll give your flesh to the the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's a big deal, actually. To to, to die without a proper burial is is bad. And so this is what this means. But David, um, who who could match, you know, words for words if you want to play the word game, said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines, not just yours, 
this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And that was, man, that's, that is good. I mean, that is a shouting scripture. Goliath came in his own name, and he cursed David according to his gods. David fought in the name of the Lord and for his glory. That's why he wasn't afraid. He wasn't looking to himself. You're not going to find what you need with human strength. In verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly. He He runs quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He's not hesitating. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Boy, it just sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? By the way, he fell forward. He fell on his face just like Dagon. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Now, we usually here we go, yeah, you know, he killed him by, by stones, but, you know, there's a little bit of a surprise. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So he finished him. Sounds like a video game. And, you know, this should remind us of something. We've just been reading of these wonderful promises of a coming deliverer. And we we, we think back to Genesis 3.15 and how the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And David literally with a, with a stone, crushed his head and chopped, for good measure, chopped off the head just like Dagon. And so God is pointing again to this promise and, and David's actions are a type of the fulfillment that was to come in Christ. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So many parallels here to Christ, we really have no excuse to miss it. This is like softball. This is made a little simpler for us. It says, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem before he put, uh, but he put his armor in his tent. 
And so what's happening here, David's great victory becomes Israel's victory. And as the Philistines fled before them, Israel rose up and, and joined the fight and plundered the enemy. The news about Jesus Christ is the news about an incredible victory. A great enemy has been defeated. Freedom has been won. Jesus Christ has overcome the enemy. And those of us who belong to him rejoice in the victory that he won for us. The enemy, Goliath, is for us Satan, sin, and death. Sin makes death such a terrible enemy because death is not just the end of life, but it brings judgment. That's why death is an enemy. The Bible says the sting of death is sin. And what makes sin so serious and deserving of death is the law of God. The law means that sin isn't merely undesirable behavior. It's, it's a failure to meet God's standard of righteousness. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory of Christ is truly breathtaking news. The demands of the law have been met in the perfect obedience of Christ. The penalty for sin has been paid for on the cross. The power of death has been broken by his mighty resurrection from the dead. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, death, you can come up music ministry, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see ourselves back to how normally when we hear David and Goliath, David and Goliath, you know, you might hear it in a sports situation. No, it's a battle of David and Goliath. You know, this team... And, you know, it's, it's, it's fine for an everyday metaphor. But, but even for the church, we hear David and Goliath, and we're immediately thinking, yeah, i got to sling some stones. And we just go, I'm David, yeah. But wait a second. In this story, David is the deliverer. So where are we? Who do we identify with? We are the fearful Israelites, frozen, unable, and unwilling to move in the face of this great enemy. That's who we should first identify with. And when we see David, we should immediately think, thank you, Lord. The shepherd king has come and has provided a major delivery a major rescue. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.
We're not meant only to be, of course, recipients of this substitutionary death of Christ. But we are meant to also join in the fight. We have a promise in Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God will be doing the crushing, but he will be using our feet. Now, it just so happens that our prayer focus this month is, Lord, help us to trust you more because of your great victory. You know, I know we're a few minutes past time, and this last few verses, I was just kind of like, I don't think I'm going to have time to fit this, but just to, just, I'm just going to read it and see if you pick up just some clues here. It says in verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in, in his hand. I just love that. <laughs> and Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? Whose son are you? Wow, at this part I get emotion? Wow. <laughs> and David answered him, I'm the son of your, your servant Jesse. The Bethlehemite. Whose son? And lastly, the, this is the Old Testament, but there's Christ everywhere. And just know that the very first book of the Old Testament, Matthew, opens up with the Gospel of Matthew. It begins with Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And the Son of God. There's our tie-in. Sure, we know that David had moral failures, and in fact, proves all the more that even as we see these types and shadows of Christ, the point is, look at how they point you to the one. Not that they are the one, but God signed the Bible with those pointers. So when you read it, when I read it, when we read it, look for Christ. Don't be the hero of your own story. Jesus is our hero. Would you stand? Lord, we, we thank you.
so much, Lord, for being our deliverer. Thank you, Lord, that even though we were fearful and frozen and unable and unwilling to move, Lord, you came and did a powerful rescue on our behalf. We thank you that you have been fulfilling and have fulfilled that promise. The seed of the woman, which is ultimately Christ, will cut off the head of the serpent. And Lord, thank you that because we are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, we share in that victory. Your victory, Lord, is our victory. And Lord, you've met every, every demand. You have accomplished and fulfilled every, everything that we need. And now, Lord, help us to trust you more. Because you are the living God. And that matters, and that makes a difference. We love you, Lord. Be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you, church.